There's several reasons behind this, but for now we're going to postpone our study of Joshua. And we're going to begin to look at something else on Sunday mornings for the near future. Over the last several days, I've kind of been fixated by a question, and that question is, what might God be trying to teach us? Or, or what might God be wanting us to learn during this time? Interestingly, I found the most relevant answer from a guy who died in 1963. It was during the Cold War that he was asked what humanity might be able to learn from this kind of atomic age. And as he thought about this time of uncertainty, and he thought about all of the fear, he said the atomic bomb has a revealing function. That it shows us something and it has us something to teach. He, C.S. Lewis, said that the, it is a reminder of how fragile the world has always been. The imminent threat, he said, has woken us up from a petty dream. And we can now begin to talk about realities. The pattern of human history seems to be that we are woken up from our petty dreams, we talk about reality for a certain period of time, and then we're lulled back to sleep. We begin to convince ourselves that the world is not something that is outside of our control. And once again, we begin to be lulled until we wake up from our petty dreams. I think this COVID-19 season is a time that's roused us from our petty dreams. What dream is that? The, the, the dream that we are so confident in our abilities, we're so capable of overcoming our anxieties, that we believe that we are all that the world needs. When we look at how far we've progressed with our knowledge, our medicine, and our technology, we can fall into this trance beginning to believe that all those things about us are real. But the reality is that our knowledge compared to God's is like a speck. Our medical advances, as much as we've discovered, still result in every person in the world dying. Behind our great technological and human advancements, humans are still subject to flesh and blood, subjected to a virus that's so small we can't even see it with our eyes. If nothing else, we need to be reminded that we don't have nearly as much control as we thought we did. So if I had to pick a biblical word to describe our human situation right now, I'd steal the word, word desert from the Bible. The Bible uses the word desert or wilderness to talk about an actual place, but it can also sometimes serve as a metaphor for those places where we are forced to wake up from our petty dreams to become completely aware of how deeply in need we are. Maybe the best way to understand desert is by comparing it to life in the city in an imaginary way. So I, I think about a lady named Deborah who lives in the city. And she wakes up every day knowing what to expect. She wakes up and he, she sends her daughter down to the market to that chubby guy who has the best wheat in town. And, and she, when she's out doing that shopping, she sends the other kids to go out and to start the fire and to warm up the oven. And, and then maybe she, along the way she realizes she's out of yeast, but that's okay because she can go to her neighbor and borrow some until she gets back to the market. Every day they eat their daily bread just like they expected to. 
And maybe after they eat, the kids ask if they can go out and play, and mom just confirms, what are the rules? They all know the rules. Don't go past the city walls, and don't go past the house of Malachi. And with that, the kids go off and play. But how would life be different in the desert? Deborah wakes up with a gnaw in her stomach. Where are we going to find food for the children today? And she sends her children off in different directions, hoping that they'll find food, but she's not confident enough that they will. She doesn't even start the fire because she's not sure. But as soon as she sends the kids off to find food, a neighbor rushes in and says, there's wild dogs, are your kids safe? Do you know where they are? And Deborah rushes out to track them down, all along the way, praying out to God to project, protect her children. See, the desert is, as someone wrote, it is outside human habitation. It is a dangerous and threatening place with wild animals and a lack of food. The desert is the place where normal life is stripped away. It's a place where you cannot forget how weak and helpless you are. In the Old Testament, after delivering the people out of Egypt, God led the people into the wilderness. But, but why? Why does God take his people into the desert? Is it because he wished to do them harm? No, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, we are told that God led them into the wilderness for two specific purposes. The first was to humble them in order to let them know that one does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. See, God wanted to teach them how dependent they had to be on him. God also took them in the wilderness to test them to see what was in their heart, to see if they would keep his commandments. When I think about desert, I think about a village located outside of the city of Port Moresby, a, a village called Hanawabada. It's an entire village where hundreds of people live on these houses built on wooden stilts out over the ocean. And visiting Hanawabada at high tide and low tide are completely different experiences. See, during the high tide, only the first couple of feet of the foundation of the logs are visible. See, the logs are placed several feet apart. Most are between 12 to 24 inches in diameter. And at high tide, when you just see the top of those logs, everything looks solid. But at low tide, all of the logs are completely visible. And without that water covering it, it's clear that on the lower parts of the logs that something has slowly eaten away at them. It's corroded and it's rotted. And in some of those places, you see at most a half of a log still there. The houses don't seem nearly as sturdy as they once did when the tide brings it back. See, the desert in the Bible is when all those foundational logs are laid bared. If you're depending on yourself to provide, it's going to be made really clear. If you're relying on your own ability, that's going to be made evident. And if you're standing on any foundation other than God, the desert will expose all of that corrosion that's eating away at your soul. See, this is why the desert has often been called the schoolmaster for the soul. See, when you want to learn to cook, you go off to culinary school. When you want to learn to become an electrician, you become an apprentice. But if you want to learn to live a life dependent on God, you should expect that you're going to go to the desert. See, the God who loves us wants to wake us up from our petty dreams 
so that we would be ready to face the reality that God wants us to see. Now, just like God led Israel into the wilderness, in the New Testament, we find that Jesus has a similar experience. That Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now, don't miss how Jesus ended up in the wilderness. Did he take a wrong turn? Did he get lost? No, he was led there by the Spirit. The language is a reminder of Israel to whom God also led into the wilderness. Now, when Jesus is in the wilderness, one of the main functions is to reveal or to uncover certain realities. I mean, we need to be paying attention to what is at the heart of who Jesus is because that's going to be revealed. But we also need to pay attention to the fact that the ways of Satan are going to be revealed and uncovered for us. See, it seems like the key responsibility for Jesus in the desert is to be able to differentiate between God's way of doing things and Satan's. Because he's going to try and help us know how to seek the realities of the kingdom when Satan keeps trying to create a fog that covers up all of the true realities of this world. See, what Jesus needs to learn to do is he must practice discernment. We may be wondering, is Jesus going to be perceptive enough to see what is God's things and what are the things of Satan. Now, we tend to think that that's not a very big deal, the, the ability to know what Satan's doing and the ability to know what God's doing, because we tend to differentiate the difference between God and Satan using this kind of black and white language of extremes. God says north and Satan says south. God says, be quiet, and Satan yells. But at least in the temptations, we're going to find that if north is zero degrees, Satan has satisfied us with us just getting five degrees off course. See, nothing that Satan offers or tempts Jesus with is not in any way evil. I mean, one way to, to, to look at that is to ask the question, what if Jesus did what Satan said? What would be the end result? So we look at the first temptation. If Jesus listened to Satan, the end result is that he would have eaten and been satisfied in his hunger. Now, would any of us say eating is evil? W would you like to make the case that if you see someone hungry and you feed them, then you're listening to the devil? No, remember, this is the same Jesus who taught us, give us our daily bread. So the end result of Jesus' eating would not have been bad or evil or wrong. What about the second temptation? If Jesus listened to Satan, the end result would have been that he would have had rule over all of the kingdoms of the world, he would have had authority, and people would have given him their glory or splendor. So is that evil for Jesus to receive these things? No, Luke highlights times, like 543, when people acknowledge his authority. We, we even find that at the end of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is entering into glory. So that end for Jesus is either not neither bad, wrong, or evil. Now, what if Jesus listened to Satan on the third temptation? The end result is that God would have protected and delivered him. But on the cross, when Jesus is crucified, he said to the man, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise, which means Jesus assumes that God will protect and deliver him. So do you see why we need to recognize nuance and subtlety? See, Jesus needs to be able to tell the difference between how God narrates how the world should be 
and how Satan does it. C.S. Lewis once said that Jesus, that Satan seeks to invite us to take the pleasures that God has produced and ruin them by enticing us to use them at times or in ways or in degrees which God has forbidden. It's not so much that the actions are wrong, it's that the underlying motives or statements of each action that Satan is trying to manipulate those things. He's trying to get Jesus to adjust the way, his way of doing things in a way that better corresponds with what Satan wishes and even with what the world wishes or expects. So Satan seems to promise the same end results, but he suggests a very different pathway. So in the first temptation, he says, there's a faster way to do it. And there's a way to do it that's completely within your control and power. So why are you enduring discomfort while you wait for God to show up? In, in the second way, again, we find Jesus saying, it, there's an easier way to do it. I mean, Satan, honestly, I don't think cares if Jesus becomes the Messiah. In fact, I think he'd be happy for Jesus to be the Messiah as long as he's the Messiah doing it in the way that Satan wants him to be the Messiah. So Satan is saying, why take the pathway of the cross when I have an easier way to do it? And in the third temptation, there is a way to do it, Satan is saying, where you can put your agenda in front of God's. You should really have more say in the process about when God shows up and how God shows up. So, so why not move forward knowing that God's going to catch up? Now, God's narrative can be summarized by the words, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's got his own timing. He has his own means and he has his own will for our lives. So what is Jesus and what are we willing to do in response to that calling? No matter how slow God's way seems to be, we're better off trusting God to give us what we need than looking for a shortcut. God's pathway may require sacrifice. We need, to, we need to value the fact that there may be some suffering along the way. And we need to commit to ourselves that we're not going to dictate about how and when God must act because this isn't about me. See, when I think about God's ways as compared to Satan's way, I think about it like a marching band. And Satan isn't trying to get you out of the marching band. He's just trying to get you to change the music you play. So that when somebody says, hey, you're not in the marching band, you can easily say, yes, I am. But what's harder to detect is the music that you're marching to. If Satan's ways and God's ways were like an architect building a house, Satan's not trying to get you to stop building the house. He's trying to get you to change the blueprints. And when somebody says, hey, you're not building a house, you can say, yes, I am. But what's harder to detect is the adjustments in the blueprint. See, during the time of testing, Jesus is equipped and prepared in three ways. And each of these become tools that he uses to discern which voices are from God and which ones are from Satan. Number one, Jesus knows his true identity. Luke chapter 3 is about affirming the identity of Jesus. We learn a couple things about his sonship. First of all, in 3.22 we learn that God says, You are my son. In 3.38 we learn that Jesus, like Adam, and like all mankind, is a son of Adam. So Jesus is to live as a son of Adam, but he is to do so with the assurance that he is the son of God. Jesus also enters full of the Holy Spirit. 
So even though the desert is empty and it's desolate, Jesus enters full, fully equipped with the abiding presence of the Spirit and the sustaining power of the Spirit. And the third thing is that Jesus knows the Word of God. He enters in equipped with God's Word. So when we have our desert seasons, how many of those resources do we have available to us? True, Jesus is Son of God in a unique way that we are not sons or daughters of God, but we are, have the identity as children of God. We do have the Spirit of God and we do have the Word of God. See, because I think we may be in one of these desert seasons as a culture, we're going to take the next few weeks and we're going to look closely at the temptations of Jesus. And, and it's going to, I hope, help give us extra incentive to be attentive and vigilant to God in the desert because God wants to teach us here. Life in the desert is about shining a light on our alliances and our allegiances and all the pillars that we build our lives on. So we need to take this time to ask if we've fallen asleep, bought into a petty dream about our own endless power and ability and strength. See, the desert is going to strip all of that away, and the question will be, what's left? What foundations are we standing on? Are we still standing firm on the words and the promises of God? So let's be sure we use this time to be awake to the reality of God. Somehow, as I think about the temptations and I think about where we are, I think of the Wizard of Oz. Remember the Wizard of Oz? You have Dorothy and the Scarecrow and the Tin Man and the Lion, and they're off searching for Oz, the great and powerful. And eventually, they find Oz. And, and at least in the, the 1939 movie rendition, they get into the presence of Oz, and there is f fire and there is smoke. And yet, as they're talking to Oz, the curtain is pulled back and they find a simple old man hiding behind the curtain. Now, when Oz is discovered, he speaks into the, into the speak microphone. He says, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. But it's too late. Everyone knows who he really is. See, my prayer is that God will use this time in our lives to pull back the curtain on all the lies that Satan is telling to pull back the curtain on all the false foundations that we often stand on. And I pray that God will use this time in our lives to teach us if we have drifted into a petty dream. And I pray that God will wake us up to His reality. May we pay attention to what God is teaching through this time of our own desert season.